All right, we are in Acts chapter 12 this morning. We are going to be looking at verses 1 through 24. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened, unleavened bread. And when he realized, and when he had seized him, he, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the, gate, of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed, time of, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god, and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. 
Thus sends our reading of God's authoritative word. May all who hear it develop a humble heart before their God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. These are the words that the Apostle Peter wrote in his first letter. And in some sense, they, they, they were taken from the Proverbs. As throughout that book, we, we see this sentiment being repeated over and over again. And yet Peter, he also had firsthand experience to the truth of these words. There were times in his life where he was the one who was proud, and Christ rebuked him for it. And then there were other times when he put on humility and found himself being lifted up. And our story for today might be one of the most prime examples of where we see pride and humility contrasted. For, for we will be looking at the life of a haughty king, who, a king who took on God. And we'll, we will be comparing him to a humble church. A church that could do nothing in their own strength, but simply had to rely on a sovereign God. But before we jump in, let's, let's set the stage. If you remember from the, our past few Sundays, we, we have been talking a lot about how the, the church was now expanding into Gentile territory. How, how the gospel of Jesus had gone out to the Romans and, and to the Greeks and how God had now included these Gentiles into his kingdom. And if you recall, this, this was all occurring during a time of peace. M much of the persecution from the Jewish religious leaders had died down, if not ceased. And these believers were now able to move about freely and proclaim the message of the gospel. And yet in our story for today, something has changed, has it not? A new enemy was beginning to rear its ugly head, and, and that enemy was the state. The state was now getting involved for the first time as this ruler named Herod was bringing about his own form of persecution. And yet as he was doing so, what, what, what this king would discover when he took on the church was that he was taking on more than just God's people, but he was taking on a greater opponent, an, an opponent that he didn't bargain for, an opponent whom he did not consider, an opponent who would battle back. Let's, let's look at our text and see how this plays out. Look at the first two verses. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, as, as we are going to be going through this story, well, one thing that we have to keep in mind is, is that pretty much the entire world at that time in the first century was controlled by Rome, right? Caesar had all the power, and everybody else was fighting tooth and nail 
in order to get a piece of the pie. And so when we come across a man like Herod, what we have to realize is that the only reason that he had attained the position that he had was because he was a fighter. He, he was a scrapper. And in order to man, maintain his rule, he would have to look out for his own best interest. Now, now, this is really the first time that we see the state getting involved in the persecution of the church. You know, beforehand, it's always been the religious leaders. But, but Luke tells us that, that King Herod had become violent with the believers, even to the point where, where the apostle James was beheaded. And so the question we must ask is this. One, who, who was this Herod? But... More importantly, why was he doing this? So, so who was this Herod? I mean, in the, in the New Testament, we, we see this name Herod a lot, do we not? And it can sometimes be confusing. For, for, for this, this name Herod, it, it wasn't really like a first name. It was more like a family name that was passed down. The, the, the first Herod that we come across is Herod the Great, Remember? This, this man who was king when Jesus was born. He was the original Herod. And all other Herods that, that came after him were his descendants. And that's because Herod the Great, the first Herod, had many wives. And in turn, he had many sons, each one taking on his name, this name of Herod. For instance, there was Herod Antipas. The, the ruler who, who had the head of John the Baptist delivered on a platter to his niece. The, this man, Herod Antipas, he was also the man who had questioned Jesus right before his death. And in fact, at one point in the Gospels, we, we discover that this man actually thought that Jesus was none other than John the Baptist raised from the dead. He, he was kind of freaked out by Jesus. But, but Herod Antipas is not the Herod who is in our story. That was another Herod. You know, the, the Herod in our story was actually Antipas' nephew, a man known as Herod Agrippa I. So what do we know about him? Well, for one, early in his life, when he was still a youth, his, his grandfather, Herod the Great, the, the original Herod, had his father executed fearing that his father was coming after the throne. And so already you, you see the dysfunction that's going on in his family, right? And then his grandfather, Herod the Great, then sent this young boy, sent Herod Agrippa to the emperor in Rome in order that he might be educated in Roman ways. And, and it was during this time in Rome that, that Agrippa became good friends with a boy named Caligula. And this will be important for Agrippa's future. And yet, as Agrippa grew older, he, he ran into some serious trouble. He had squandered away his family's wealth and eventually became massively in debt. And in fact, he, he owed so much money that he feared for his own life and thus had to flee Rome. And yet, as the years passed, fortune struck for, in 37 AD, guess what? His childhood buddy Caligula, 
that guy became emperor. And it was Caligula that gave Herod Agrippa a fresh start. Basically, he, he, he wiped the slate, slate clean for his friend and, and made him the, the ruler over many territories, which, which, by the way, happened to include Judea and Samaria. And then a few years later, he, he would be given rule over Galilee as well. Bottom line, what we have in this man named Herod Agrippa was someone who saw firsthand all the inner workings of what it took to be to gain political party, political power in the first century. How it was this game of life and death. And that power was only kept by placating to Caesar. And let's be honest, Caesar was only happy when there was peace. And so a big role that Agrippa had was to appease the people over whom he ruled. And it is this appeasement of the masses that plays a significant role in our text for today. And think of it this way. Who were the majority of the people whom Agrippa needed to make happy? The Jews, right? And in order to make the Jews happy, well, you needed to make their religious leaders happy. And so maintaining his authority hinged on having favor with these Jewish religious leaders. And what better way to make those men happy than by attacking their enemies? You see, even though these men had taken a break from persecuting the church, Honestly, I I think they they saw the futility in it because the church just kept growing and growing even though they were persecuting. And and so even though they took a break from that, that didn't mean that their hatred for these Christians had dwindled. And Herod knew this. And and that was probably the reason why he became violent against the church. I, I don't think Herod would have done anything if it didn't suit his own political ambitions. And so it became open season on Christians. And it was the Apostle James who felt the brunt of Herod's fury. And when, when the Apostle James was executed, this pleased the Jews very, very much. Look at, look at our next few verses. Look at verses 3 through 5. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Like I indicated earlier, the, this Herod Agrippa, he was, he was gauging the people's response after having executed the Apostle James. How, how would the death of this Christian leader play with the masses? Well, evidently, it, it played pretty well. In fact, the people were so pleased that it encouraged Agrippa to continue this practice. And that's, that's why we see the arrest of Peter. I mean, if taking, if taking out one of the apostles of Christ gained him that much favor, then what would happen if he would take out their ringleader? 
this one whom they call Peter. And so Peter was arrested. And yet, Agrippa didn't have Peter killed, at least not right away. And that was because of the Passover, right? And he arrested him at the wrong time. And so he would have to wait in order to have an execution because having an execution during the, the, the Jewish holy festival would not have won him any friends. And so we see this heavy guard being kept upon this man in order to make sure that, that Peter wouldn't escape. And Luke tells us that he placed four squads of soldiers to watch this man. Now, while Luke will eventually go on to explain a little more about what this meant, essentially there were, there were four sets of four soldiers. Each group would take these three-hour shifts guarding Peter through the night. Two would be guarding the door while the other two would be inside the cell with Peter and they would be chained to his wrists. And when you think about it, basically Agrippa wanted to make it impossible for Peter to escape. And that's because Peter was now his prized possession, right? For this man's execution would, would, would win him so much favor with the Jewish people. And he was planning on having a very, very public trial that next morning. And yet while Agrippa was relying on the strength of his soldiers, what is it that we see the church doing? What does Luke say to us? But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is really the first difference that we see between the proud and the humble. While this proud king was trusting in the strength of men, it was the humble church that sought the Almighty God in prayer. And that's because humility prays to the sovereign God. Humility prays to the sovereign God. Today we can go into almost any church across the world and guess what you will find? You will find prayers going up for other brothers and sisters in Christ who are in dire straits. And why is this the case? It's because the church truly understands who has the real power. You see, when, when, when the church prays to the sovereign God, they are, they are lifting their voice to the one who has ultimate control. And that's because they understand that, that while men like Herod may, may wield great earthly power, these leaders, they, they, they can actually do nothing unless the Lord allows them to do it. And, and so in reality the, reality, the decision as to whether Peter died or whether he lived was never in the hands of Herod Agrippa. No. Jesus would be the one who would decide Peter's fate. Let me ask you, do, do you realize that, that when you pray, you are seeking the one who can do anything that he wants? That there is no thing that, that he cannot do? You know, sometimes I wonder if we don't fully grasp what we are doing when we're praying. 
that we are actually communicating to, to the very one who created everything. That, that we are lifting our voices to the one who sustains everything. That, that, that we are crying out to the one whom, if he wanted to, could turn everything back into dust. I mean, that's the one whom we are praying to. But, but it takes humility to see that. It takes humility to grasp that reality. It takes an understanding that without God's help, you can, can do nothing. You are powerless. Perhaps that's why our prayers tend to be short and lacking in faith. Because we, we don't truly understand who it is that we are talking to and, and how much we, we need him. Luke tells us that this early church prayed earnestly. And I believe the reason they did so was because they knew, they knew that they were powerless to help Peter. And yet they believed that God wasn't. Let's see what came about of their prayers. Look at, look at verses 6 through 11. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left, left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And here we see Luke going into the details of how securely Peter was kept, being chained between these two soldiers. Luke is letting us know that that escape was humanly impossible. And yet it wasn't a human whom Luke described next, right? For what do we see happening? An angel of the Lord suddenly appeared. And he was shining with God's glory. And an angel had entered into Peter's prison and he had filled that cell with his bright light. Now, now you have to remember that this was, was, was early, early in the morning before the break of dawn. It would have been pitch black in that cell. And yet, for some reason, there was not a soul who noticed this angel's entrance. Now, how could that be the case? I mean, think about it. There were, there were 16 guards who were on a, on a rotating shift, and, and four of them should have been awake at that time. And yet, for some reason, not a one of them noticed this angel. 
one can only guess that God had somehow put these soldiers to sleep. And yet they were not the only ones who was sleeping, were they? And what was the first thing that the angel did after he arrived? He's poking Peter on the side, right? Wake up! <laughs> I mean, now think about that. I mean, how in the world could Peter be sleeping so soundly in his situation? I mean, for one, I mean, he, I have to imagine that his cell wasn't all that comfortable. Not to mention having chains on your wrist and having to sit between these two guards. But secondly, and more importantly, Peter knew exactly what was awaiting him at the end of that long night. That the same exact fate that, that had come to James was going to come to him. A, a farce of a trial followed by his own beheading. Now how can a person rest in those conditions? In those circumstances? Peter had come a long way since Jesus had called him off that boat. From being a, a wide-eyed disciple to arguing with the other 11 as to who would be the greatest in Christ's kingdom. Sure, Peter had his moments as well. He was, he was the one who answered correctly when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? Peter gave the answer, you are the Christ the Son of God. And yet only moments later, Jesus had to rebuke Peter. You remember? When Peter didn't like Jesus' plan of going to Jerusalem to die, what were the words that, that, that Jesus spoke? Get behind me, Satan. That's a harsh rebuke. And yet, Peter was also one of the chosen free that Jesus had taken with him up, the, up to that Mount of Transfiguration. Peter got to see the unveiling of the, of the glory of Christ. And yet, when his master was betrayed by Judas, remember, it was Peter who had denied Jesus three times. And yet three days later, when word came to his ear that, that, that Jesus had risen from the dead, it was, it was Peter and John who, who raced to the tomb in order that they might see for themselves. And then since that time, Peter had experienced the power of Jesus Christ when the Holy Spirit had fallen upon him. And it was on that day, the day of Pentecost, where Peter was able to preach the gospel to thousands. And many, many people entered into the kingdom as they repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus for forgiveness. And Peter had been proclaiming that message ever since. In fact, Peter, Peter, Peter had been used by Jesus to perform miracles and, and healings. And yet in the same breath, Peter also experienced persecution firsthand. And then remember, just a, just a few weeks ago, we saw that, that Peter was the one who received the vision from heaven, right? Demonstrating that the kingdom also belonged to the Gentiles. And yet only a few days earlier, Peter had to mourn the death of his good friend James. 
You see, Peter, he had gone through all the ups and downs that come with the Christian life. And yet through it all, there was, there was one thing that remained constant. And that was this. Jesus was always in control. Jesus was always in control. And no matter what evil occurred, no matter what hardship came Peter's way, those things could not thwart Jesus' purposes. And that, my friends, is why, why Peter slept so soundly. For he knew that whether he lived or whether he died, Jesus, his king, would be the one who made that decision. And this leads to my second point. Humility rests in Christ's sovereignty. Humility rests in Christ's sovereignty. And this same rest is available to all who place their trust in Jesus Christ. For no matter what lies before you in this life, you can rest assured that Jesus is in control of it all. When you are having financial difficulties, Jesus Christ is in control. When you are ill, Jesus Christ is in control. When you are suffering for his namesake, Jesus Christ is in control. And you, as his child, you can rest in his sovereignty. That's what Peter did. Whether he died or whether he lived, he knew that it would be Jesus' will and that Christ would be right by his side through it all. And yet it wasn't his time to die, was it? At least not yet. And that was why Jesus had sent his angel. Christ had removed the chains that were around Peter's wrists. Christ had unlocked the door that was barring Peter's way. And the angel then, then guided Peter through the city, quietly around those guards, out into the streets, safely away from harm's reach. And, and did you notice how, how, how Peter was kind of like in a, a dreamlike state throughout the whole ordeal? He was like a, a little boy who, who, who gets into his parents' car. Right? He sits down, he buckles up. He doesn't really know how his parents get him from point A to point B. He just simply sits back, relaxes, enjoying the ride, trusting that his parents will, will get him to where he needs to go. And that's why most kids fall asleep in the car easily, right? It's because they have no worries. And before they know it, they're, they're, they're suddenly there. I imagine that's how, how Peter felt when he woke from his stupor and found himself in the middle of that street. For this was a divine rescue, right? A, a rescue that wasn't reliant on Peter's strength. For what did Peter say once the angel had left? He said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. 
Peter was in Christ's hands, and he felt safe. Let's continue. Look at, look at verses 12 through 17. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on, at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They, they said to her, you are, out, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened and saw him, they were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now in this comical scene, we see Peter being stuck outside this house of Mary. And all because... This, this young girl named Rhoda, in her excitement, she forgot to let Peter in, right? And what's even funnier is that when, when, when we see Rhoda arguing with, with those inside, whether or not she really saw Peter, you know, they're, they're just arguing with, with one another about it. And what were the others saying? It, that she was out of her mind. That, that it couldn't have been Peter. It must have been his angel. I don't know what they meant by that. Um, there's people who have thoughts about that. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but it, it, do you see how crazy this is? I mean, who says that God doesn't have a sense of humor, right? And this is pretty funny. Think about it. What, what would have been the easiest way for Rhoda to prove to her friends that it was really Peter. Let's go to the gate. Open the gate, right? Let him in. And what would have been the easiest way for the others to, to prove to Rhoda that she was out of her mind? Again, just go to the gate and open it and see, oh, Peter's not there. You're out of your mind. Perhaps everyone in that house was out of their mind, right? Or maybe they're just too tired to think. And yet, eventually, it was Peter's insistent knocking that that woke them from their hysteria, forcing them to go to the door and to open it. And what does Luke tell us happened when, when they saw Peter's face? He says that they were amazed. They were amazed. Now, now consider all that had been going on. I mean, these believers had been praying earnestly through the night for Peter. I mean, of course they were tired. Of course they weren't thinking straight. And yet these, these things also demonstrate how committed they were to praying for their brother. How they were praying earnestly. And yet when God answered their prayers, they were shocked. They expressed amazement and unbelief. Now, does this mean that they lacked faith? Of course not. What it simply means is that God came through in a way that they didn't expect. I mean, consider what had happened to James, right? My guess is that they were praying earnestly for James as well. 
only to see that it was God's plan to have that man be martyred for the faith. And perhaps that would be what God wanted for Peter as well. And bottom line, they were, they were unsure of how God would answer their prayers. They just knew that, that Peter was in a desperate, desperate situation and that he needed God's help. And yet there Peter was, right, in Mary's home. And, and they would rejoice knowing that their brother in Christ was safe. But that's what humility does. It does not presume to know God's will. Rather, it rejoices in the victories that God sovereignly brings about in this life. Humility does not presume to know God's will. Rather, it rejoices in the victories that God sovereignly brings in this life. Many times when we, we come to God in prayer, we do not always see the outcome that we hope for, do we? A loved one becomes ill, and instead of getting better, they only get worse. That, that promotion at work that you were praying for went to someone else. That, that person whom you shared the gospel with has decided to reject Jesus Christ. Listen, what, what we have to understand is that, is that God is really the only one who sees the whole picture. And in fact, he, he doesn't just see the whole picture, but, but he is the one who is painting the picture. And so what may seem to us like a defeat today is part of his sovereign plan. A plan that will bring about the, the greatest victory that could ever be conceived. And thus James was meant to die, and Peter was meant to live. And it was appropriate, and it was good for these believers in Mary's house to rejoice. And we too should rejoice when we see victories this side of Christ's return. We need to celebrate our wins, because they are a part of God's will. They are part of God's perfect plan. And they are a demonstration to us of the love that he has for us. And they also point us to that greater victory. A victory that is to come. Well, this isn't the last lesson that God wants us to learn from this text. Let's look at the next two verses. Look at verses 18 and 19. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Well, it wasn't until the sun rose that it was discovered by these soldiers that, that Peter had fled, that he was gone. And, and this led to quite a commotion among them, as it should have. I mean, how would they explain to King Agrippa that, that this prisoner who was supposed to stand trial that very morning, this, this prisoner who was going to win Agrippa favor with the people, was nowhere to be found? And more importantly, how, how, how would these men now claim that they had been faithful to their duties, even though Peter was no longer there? 
You see, as a Roman soldier, if you allowed a prisoner to escape, then, then you would be the one to suffer the punishment that that prisoner deserved. And so, yes, when, when Peter was not found, there was no little disturbance. And what do we see from this King Agrippa? That he did not hesitate to put these soldiers to death. There was no mercy with this king. If he couldn't get the blood of Peter, he, he would get his blood somewhere else. Dear friends, I, I, I hope you see the dichotomy between this worldly king and Peter's heavenly king. For while King Jesus was bringing about salvation to his servant, this other king, this king who had decided to take on God, lacked any mercy at all. Instead, he chose the path of violence as he put his own servants to death. And yet, as easily as Herod could take a life, so too could his life be taken from him. Look at verses 19 and 20. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And here we see Herod wasn't just angry at some people, he was angry at a lot of people, right? It wasn't just his soldiers who, whom he was mad at, but he was mad at the people of Tyre and Sidon as well. And this led to great turmoil in those regions. You see, Tyre and, and Sidon, they, they, they were these two port cities located on, on the Mediterranean Sea north of Galilee. And because the, the, the plain between, between the mountains and the sea in that stretch was, was so narrow that these people didn't have much land in which to farm. And so they became reliant upon region, the regions of Galilee and Samaria and Judea in order to feed their own people. And yet those were the regions that were under the control of Herod Agrippa. And so when this dispute arose, Herod cut off their supply. Now, now Luke doesn't tell us what exactly this dispute was all about. Just that Agrippa was so angered that he put the lives of thousands upon thousands of people in danger of starvation. <laughs> and that's why you see these representatives from Tyre and Sidon coming to this king in the hopes of making peace in order that he might bring food to their cities once more. And because of this, guess what? Herod Agrippa, well, he had all the power, right? He held all the cards in his hand. Well, let's see what happens next. Look at, look at verses 21 and 22. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. In his pride, this haughty king took the stage. He donned his best robes, 
The historian Josephus said that there, there were these silver, ro- silver robes that gleamed in the sun. And then he gave this oration. He was basically dictating the terms of their treaty. Yes, he would send relief to these people, but it undoubtedly came at a price. And yet the people of both Tyre and Sidon, they, they had no choice, really. They, they needed to grovel at this man's feet in order to be fed. And that's why we see them saying what they said. The voice of a God and not of a man. Now what do you do when you are called a God? What should you do? This isn't the first time in the book of Acts that we've seen a man being worshipped as a God. In fact, if you remember, it was in the house of Cornelius when Cornelius bowed down to Peter when Peter had entered into his home. And what did Peter do when that happened? Look look, look at Acts chapter 10, verses 25 and 26. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. Now now compare Peter's reaction to the reaction of Herod Agrippa. Peter was quick to correct Cornelius' mistake. And yet Agrippa made no correction at all. In fact, he, he reveled in the worship that he was receiving. He took for himself the very honor that was due to God. The, the, the arrogance of this king was so great that he allowed himself to be worshipped. Agrippa's pride had run its course, and now God was going to deal with this man. Look at verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Dear friends, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. He opposes all those who put themselves in his position. And do not kid yourself. There will come a day when your life will be required of you. And when that day comes, you can either be prideful and try to stand on your own merit. Or you can humble yourself and trust in the merit of someone else. You see, pride says, I can pass God's tests all on my own. Yet humility looks to another. It looks to Jesus Christ and to his righteousness. And that's because it is only Jesus who lived a sinless life. It is only Jesus who met that standard. And it is only Jesus who died for sinners, paying the penalty that we deserve. And so on that day, when you you stand before God, you will discover that God truly does oppose the proud. And yet for those who are humble, for those who who, who look 
to Jesus Christ, who don't look to themselves, but look to that Holy One and to His righteousness, well, then God will give them grace. Herod Agrippa was a man who exemplified arrogance. And God struck him down. I mean, think about all that this man was doing. He was violently attacking Christians simply because it gained him political power. He, he then used food as, as a bargaining chip with people who were starving. And then when they worshipped him as a god, he, instead of refusing such praise, he, he took it all in for his own glory. And the fact that God did not strike this man down sooner was just, it just demonstrates God's mercy. And once again, God sent his angel, did he not? Only this time, he wasn't on a mission of rescue. He, he was God's instrument of judgment. God's wrath was both swift and public. Agrippa began feeling the pangs of death in the very spot where he was being extolled as a god. And it wasn't just any death, but, but, but this was a painful internal ailment that was eating him from the inside, perhaps by some parasitic worms. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, Agrippa suffered in agony for five days before he finally breathed his last. And yet, as gruesome and as graphic as this was, there, there's a lesson concerning humility that we can learn in the tale of this prideful king. And that lesson is this. That humility allows God to sovereignly dispense his judgment in his good timing. Humility allows God to sovereignly dispense his judgment in his good timing. You see, our, our natural instinct when we are attacked, when we are persecuted in some form, is to fight back, is it not? It is to take whatever leverage we may have and use it against our opponents. I mean, this is what we do in America, is it not? Whether it's a church or a Christian school or, or even a Christian baker, we, we battle for our rights our rights to express our religion without interference from the state. And when we don't get our way, what do we do? We, we, we file lawsuits. We make an appeal to the Constitution. And, and yet what we don't tend to do is to allow God to exact his own justice. Now, now don't get me wrong. I, I think the Constitution is great. And I believe that religious freedom is something worth fighting for. But, but there is going to come a time when, when this man-made document will no longer save you. And the only justice that you will be able to find will have to come from our sovereign God. This one who dispenses his justice in his own good timing. And listen, the, the, the early church did not have a constitution. Instead, they were ruled by egotistical tyrants who did not hesitate to kill anyone who got in their way if they knew that it would win them political favor, if it would help them maintain their own power. 
And yet this didn't stop the church, did it? Because they knew that that true justice wouldn't be delivered in this life. Instead, they were longing for that day when Christ would return and dispense his justice. They They were longing for that day when Jesus would avenge their losses. Look at the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God will deliver his vengeance in his own timing. What he asks of us is to be faithful to his word and to the mission which he has called us to. Even if that means that there will come a day when it will be asked of us to pour out our blood. And yet we are not to seek vengeance on our own. Rather, we are to rely on his justice. We are to rely on his timing and we must believe that God's purposes will win the day look at, look at our last verse look at Acts 12 verse 24 but the word of God increased and multiplied you see d- d- despite the persecution that, that, that King Agrippa brought against the church Despite the fact that the Apostle James had lost his head. Despite the fact that that Peter had to flee from Jerusalem. The church continued to grow. And that's because God is sovereign. And his will cannot be thwarted. There, there, There is no power in heaven and on earth that can stop the advancement of his kingdom. And that is why we pray to our sovereign God. That is why we rest in Christ's sovereignty. That is why we rejoice when we see victories in this life. And that is why we allow our sovereign God to dispense his judgment in his own good timing. Let us pray. Father, to Too often we have prideful hearts. We rely on our own strength rather than relying on your strength. So we ask now that you would help us. Help us to repent by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to become a humble church. Help us to pray to you knowing that it is only you who can solve our problems. And help us to rest in you as we understand that you truly are the only one who is in control. 
and help us to rejoice in the victories that you send our way. And finally, help us to be patient. Patient in our sufferings as we await your justice, your perfect justice. We can only do this with your help. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.